0: We are doing a series called Love Story, and uh, in this series, we're going to be exploring different themes uh, from the Song of Songs. And uh, some of the themes that we're going to be tackling uh, in the weeks ahead are attraction, marriage prep, uh, conflict resolution, sexual intimacy, and and lifelong love. Now, uh, as you've noticed from the video, you've probably picked up today. We are going to be talking about attraction. And if, any, if anything is clear from the video, it is that puffer fish know how to woo the ladies. Am I right? And some of you here today are saying, man, can I get myself a puff daddy like that <laughs> who's going to work 24 hours a day for seven days just to get my attention. I mean, that is attraction uh, at its finest. Isn't that an amazing video? Like I just, I saw it a couple, like, a couple weeks ago and I'm like, that you yeah, you got to show that. Okay. Get it? Get it? Did, get, it? Did get her? Uh, no, they they caught him and they ate him. He was delicious. Yeah. Yeah, the fish is gone. Yeah. No, I don't know. That's the question, right? Did he get her? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe maybe a water skier came by and just totally Oh, rats. I do this again. Okay, well, uh, Today, before before we get further into the topic, uh, I want to first give you a brief introduction to the book that we're going to be studying, uh, because if you're going to dive into Song of Songs, you just have to have a little bit of a background information so that you can more understand what this book is all about. So I'm going to quickly answer three questions this morning about the book, and then we're going to dive into the topic. And so the three questions are this. Number one, who wrote the book? Number two, what's it about? And number three is, what is it like? So first of all, first question, who wrote the book? Well, let's just read the very first verse from Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, the the first verse obviously gives us a little bit of clue about who wrote it. Uh, Among scholars, there's basically two opinions. Uh, One group, a large group, says it was written by Solomon himself. Another group says that it wasn't written by Solomon. It was uh, written by a contemporary author who was writing in the tradition of Solomon. Now, it is not hard to imagine that Solomon could have written this book. After all, he was the son of King David King David was the warrior poet. He wrote most of the, uh, the book of Psalms. Um, and 1 Kings 4.32 tells us that Solomon spoke over 3,000 proverbs, and his poems and songs numbered just over 1,000. So conceivably, Solomon could have written this book. But at the end of the day, who wrote the book isn't as important as what it says. And it's still God's word for us. Now, you'll notice also in verse 1 that it says this. It says, the song of... Songs that was a very Hebrew way of saying that this is the best of the best it 's a superlative what he 's saying is that this is the best song ever I mean you 'll see this in other Hebrew ways. I mean uh, you, you hear things like King of Kings right, holy of Holies, lord of lords that 's what they're saying. this thing is There are songs, but there 's this song, so this is supposed to be the song above all other songs. This is the chart topper. If it's the chart topper, then that asks makes this want to ask the second question, which is this. What's it all about? What is this chart topper all about? And the quick answer is, primarily, this is a love song. It describes the verbal, emotional, physical, romantic relationship between a man and a woman. Now, the thing to understand is uh, throughout history, not everybody has shared this view. Actually, for much of church history, Song of Songs was interpreted as an allegory. In other words, it was, it was seen as, as a metaphor describing the relationship either between God and Israel or the relationship between Jesus and his church. So all this romantic imagery that you find in the book of Song of Songs, it's not really about a man and a woman. It's more about how God enters into relationship with his church. And so instead of describing what humans are doing, it's describing aspects of this divine and human relationship. Now, this will not be the approach that we will be taking in the book as we study it. And truth be told, uh, a strictly allegorical interpretation of the Song of Songs is problematic. Uh, let me tell you why. Uh, on one hand, there's, there's actually nothing in the book that signals that it should be interpreted in this way. Typically, there, when, you, when you read ancient literature and it is an allegory, there's something in the book that just kinda clues you in right away that this is an allegory, it's meaning something else. There are no clues at all in the book that it should be interpreted this way. Nothing in the text. Uh, On the other hand, interpreting it allegorically might actually not be that helpful. Actually, it might be challenging. Uh, Sometimes when when different people have have tried to interpret the Song of Songs allegorically over the years, they they run into some hitches, some some complications. Uh, For example, let me just give you an example from um, today's text, chapter 1 and verse 13. Uh, I'll just read a a, a bit of scripture from chapter 1. Here's what it is. My beloved is to me A sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. Now, as you can imagine, you would probably have to work really hard with this verse to make the symbolism kind of fit in the relationship between God and the church. It's very, very difficult. You have to kind of force fit it. but uh, some commentators have actually tried to do this. So let me give you an example. Let me give you an example of what an, an actual commentator from a very old commentary has said. So he would say, well, in that verse, the, the women's breasts mean or describing the two testaments of the Bible. So one is the Old Testament, and the other is the New Testament, which we hold, we hold dear to our hearts. Um, Of course, what they might not have considered is that the Old Testament is twice as large as the New Testament. And so it kind of breaks down the imagery (laughs) right there. That's a problem. So this is just an example of of some of the challenges you might have with a strictly allegorical interpretation of the text. Now, we could choose to read it as an allegory um, uh, because the higher principle of it is love, okay? And it does talk a lot about that. But in this series, we are going to take it at face value. We are going to talk about it and treat it as a love story that exists between a man and God a woman. Now, uh, in the story, there are two main characters. Uh, there is a man in the story who most people will identify as Solomon himself. And if he's not Solomon, then he's a lot like Solomon. Uh, he's someone who comes from money. He comes from high society and means, okay? Uh, he's a brother with some bling and a BMW. BMW. So, uh, but the other woman person in the story is the woman, and she is known as the Shulamite. And she's called the Shulamite because that's where she's from. She's from a region called Shulam. Uh, for the sake of this uh, series, we're going to call her Shulamith. So we've got Solomon, and you've got Shulamith. And uh, she's more of a simple country girl. She comes from a, a kind of a, a farming, agricultural family. Uh, she has less, less money, less means in the story. And then in the story, there, there's this group of friends who just kind of appear every once in a while. And if you've read Song of Solomons, you're like, what? What are they doing in the story? They just kind of appear and just kind of do a bit of a commentary on what's happening in the story. Uh, so they, they kind of function like um, like a Greek chorus. Uh, so if you've watched musical theater, you may be seen this type of thing going on. Uh, anyone watch musical theater at oh, all? Okay, uh, Les Mis, Phantom of the Opera. Okay. So like in musical theater, you know there's dialogue, there's talking, and then there's this moment you're like, okay, I feel a song coming on, right? There's like this pause. Music starts, underscore, then they're singing, right? And wherever they are, there are people around them, and all of a sudden, the people just turn in, and they join in the song, and they just start singing. Now, they're not important to the story. They're just a part of the story, okay? You'll find that in this as well. As you read through Song of Songs, there's this group of people that every once in a while, they just commentate. They add to the story. All right. Um, So third question, final question is, what's it like? What is the Song of Solomon like? Well... As you read through it, you'll discover that it flows differently than most pieces of literature you've ever read. And that's because it's ancient Hebrew poetry. And as a matter of fact, it's actually a compilation of a variety of different Hebrew poems that are kind of woven together to create this one eight chapter text. Um, And these poems, interestingly enough, they're not really in sequential order. Uh, they're more like a, a modern movie that has like, flashbacks and fast-forwards and flashbacks and fast-forwards. So if you read through it, it's not sequential. It feels a little bit like it's kind of all over the place. But running through these eight chapters, what you'll discover are many recurring themes that just kind of come up. Again and again and again. And so what we're going to try and do in this series is we're going to try and extrapolate some of these themes. Uh, we're going to be drawing on the principles from the text. We're going to be looking at them topically. Uh, and we don't want to lose the sense of the text, okay? But we're going to be pulling out these, these principles from within it. Uh, like I said, we're going to look at attraction, courtship, God-honoring sex, conflict, and lasting love. Now, if you have never read Song of Songs before, you have to be forewarned it does get a little bit steamy at some points, okay? Um, It's likely one of the reasons why people have leaned towards an allegorical interpretation uh, in church history. Uh, Some of the ancient church fathers like Origen and Jerome, they believe that a person should not read the Song of Songs until they are 30 years old, okay? It's that racy, okay? Um, There are others who believe that the book should never be read in a mixed-gender congregation like this, And there are others who said the book should never be read privately by somebody with an impure heart, okay? So that gives you a bit of an idea of the content that we're going to be looking at. Now, I want to say this. For this series, I am going to do everything I possibly can to try and keep this PG, okay? With the exception of the third week, okay? The third week we're going to be looking at God honoring sex, so it's going to be up a little bit to PG thirteen. And I say that because uh, parents, be forewarned. You know, if if you're thinking of bringing your kids in here, I've told you what we're going to be talking about. Okay, and uh, if you want to explain it to them at the home, that's fine. They're going to discover it eventually anyway. But why not in a safe environment where we're in church and we're doing it from God's perspective? Okay, but just be forewarned uh, about that coming up. And I'm going to do my best. I mean, the, the, the challenge with doing this series, I and mean, Karen and I have been talking about it, when you're at home and you're in this, everything suddenly becomes an innuendo, okay? You're not intending it to be, but it, but it just does. So uh, I sometimes I'm going to say things that we're all got different levels of what we can tolerate and what we can work on. I'm going to try to keep the bar really, really low, okay, so that it doesn't uh, offend uh, most people. Anyway, but it is song of songs, okay? I'm not trying to offend, but sometimes things just, they just come out. Uh, if you knew what I was holding back, okay? <laughs> you would say, bless you, brother. Thank you, okay? Thank you. Okay, let's, let's get back to the puffer fish, shall we? Let's talk a little bit about attraction. Um, how many of you would agree that attraction is pretty important in a relationship? Yeah, okay, yeah. In a relationship, attraction gets traction. Would we agree? Turn to the person beside you and just say that. Attraction gets traction. Go ahead. Let's start that. Loosen up. All right. Attraction gets traction. Now, uh, clearly what we read in the text is that Solomon and Shulamith had attraction, and they just get right into it in verse 2. Let me just read verse 2 for you here this morning. She says this to him. She says, let me kiss you with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Hello, that's attraction. Biscuits are burning. He is a tall drink of water, and she is thirsty, okay? So the question is, what was it in that relationship that attracted her to him, And what was it in that relationship that attracted him to her? That's what I want to focus on today. Here's the thing. If you're not married here today, okay, one of the questions you want to ask is, what are the qualities in a a potential future mate that I should be attracted to? Right? I'm sure you've got your list. You've got your long list. You've got your short list. Okay? But you've got this list. Okay? Um, And I think the more important question is, what we're going to focus on, is what qualities do you need to grow in yourself to attract the right kind of a person. But here's the other thing. Is maybe you're here today and you are married. You are married to someone. Just because you're married doesn't mean you don't still need to develop attraction in your relationship to strengthen your relationship. Fellas, do not let yourself go, Okay? Um, still work on yourself, okay? It's important in a relationship. Uh, you shouldn't just throw in the towel. You shouldn't just say, I'm just going to put my feet up and watch TV for the rest of my life because I've got my name written on a piece of paper. That's not how it works. Attraction still matters in your relationship for the future, okay? And we're going to walk, walk through that a little bit and t- tell you how. Um, now, so we are going to focus today on four qualities of attraction as we walk through the text. So what are they? Here's the first quality of attraction that we find in the text, character. The first thing that we will notice in the story is that Shulamith was attracted to Solomon's character. Let's read verse 3. Here's what she says. She says, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Now, a little bit of background here. It's important to understand that this text was written in a day where there was not a whole lot of bathing going on, okay? There was not a lot of access to large quantities of water. You didn't have a a tap and a pipe, okay? So typically, people maybe bathed every two or three days. So the alternative to bathing was perfume, okay? It was the mask that was covering everything up. So Shulamith is essentially... First off, she's paying him a legitimate comment here. She's saying, okay, well done, well done with the Axe body spray, okay? You smell delicious. I thank you. Everybody else here around you thanks you. Thank you for doing that, okay? But more than just his aroma, she is saying, I respect your character. Note what she says. She says, your name, your name is like perfume poured out. And when she talks about his name, what she's referring to is his reputation that stems from his character. He was a person of integrity. People looked up to him. They thought well of him. He was was this person who people respected. He had a good name. You know, the Bible, it, it actually places a lot of emphasis, a lot of importance on a person's name. Uh, when, when the Hebrews would name their children, that name had significance about that child's future. That's why, that's why Jesus renamed Saul and gave him the name Paul. That's why Jesus renamed the name, the person Cephas, and gave him the name Peter. Because in the Bible, names matter. Uh, here, here's what Proverbs 22:1 1 says. It says, a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. So Shulamith was saying, listen, the most attractive thing about you, it's not your smell. The most attractive thing about you is your name. She admired who he was, not just what he looked like. He wasn't just a hottie with a body, okay? He was a man of character, and she admired that in him. So here's a question. When you are considering and you are looking for a life partner, what are you most attracted to? How many of you know that we live in a culture that puts such a huge emphasis on physical attractiveness? Now, I'm not saying physical attractiveness does not matter. I mean, it has a role, it has a place. It's just that the haughty you marry now will not be the same 30 years from now. Anyone over the age of 50 know what I'm talking about? Okay. Every human being succumbs to the same inescapable reality that is known as gravity. Okay. Gravity, it is as certain as death and taxes. Thanks to gravity, your skin will sag. Your body will droop. Your nose and your ears will not stop growing. They will keep getting longer. The skin on your back, uh, on your back will sag. The skin under your arms will wobble. Your finest features will slide four inches to the south. Thank you, gravity. Gravity. When the body fades, character remains. And that's why character matters more than being cut or clean shaven. Character matters more than curves or cleavage. So if character matters, you got to do your homework, right? You've got to do your homework. And before you consider getting into a relationship with someone, I think it's really important to ask around. Talk to people. Find out what does this person stand for? Uh, The other thing you might want to do, I don't think there's a problem with it. If you're going to date someone, I actually recommend it, is creep a little. Get on social media, find that person's profile, and start looking. Start looking at the pictures. Start looking at the comments and ask the questions, what does this reveal about this person's character? What does this say about this person's name? Now, when a boy um, wants to date my daughter, first of all, he has to ask me, Okay, this is kind of a deal. And my girls are, this is totally legit. They love it. It's fine. Uh, But they have to sit down and we have a conversation. We talk about many things. Um, It's a great conversation. Um, I show them my guns. Uh, Not just a gun on the table. These ones do. No, I don't. Um, No, we just have a great conversation. But one of the things that I stress when we're in that conversation together is is I, I say, listen, I want to insist that you don't just couple up as a couple and disappear from the rest of the world that you just hide yourselves away from the rest of the world, you abandon all your friends, you lose all your relationships and communication, and you're just this little, you know, void over here, separated from the rest of the world. And let me, let me tell you why. Uh, I understand that dating is a preparation for marriage. Just because you date someone doesn't mean you have to marry them or that you're going to marry them. But in dating, you, you learn to model what um, an ultimately a marriage relationship is going to look like. So ultimately, you wouldn't date somebody that you're never going to consider even marrying. Like, why would you go there, right? So. In a dating relationship, if that's a person that you might possibly one day be considering for marriage, you wanna know what that person is like. If it's just the two of you alone together all the time, all you know is what that person is like when they're with you. If you really want to get to know a person, find out what they're like when they're in a group of people with everybody else, find out what they're like around your friends. Are they a person who cares? Are they a person of compassion? Are they a person of good reputation? You will not discover that if you just couple up and disappear from the world one-on-one. The best way to discover that is dating in groups. And so I always encourage to do that. And you might want to consider that as well. Is this a person? Don't trust the dating profile, okay? That probably is not going to give you all the information you want. Don't trust just the one on relationship. Get in community and do it in community. So... Uh, now, the more important question I have is this this morning. Because uh, it's one thing to say, okay, what am I going to be attracted to? But the more important question is this What does your name represent? When people hear your name, have you ever thought about that? What comes to mind? What, what kind of a person are you? What do people think of? Uh, what, what do they think about your character? Are you trustworthy? Are you honest? Are you kind? Are, are you caring? Are you good? What is in your name? Because here's a hint about attraction. Like attracts like. And what that means is that people of character are drawn to people of character. So if you want to date people of character, it's important that you become a person of character. Let me say this. A person of of character, of integrity, they are not going to date somebody who's not a person of character and integrity. Because it goes against everything that they stand for. So if you want to attract a person of character, you have to be a person of character. I like how Andy Stanley said it. He said this, become the person that you're looking for is looking for. I'll say it again. Become the person you are looking for is looking for. So if you are looking for a person of character, you need to become a person of character. Listen, a great marriage does not start with finding the right person. A great marriage always starts with becoming the right kind of person. And when you become the right kind of a person, you will find the right kind of person. So the question is, what does your name stand for? Are you a person of character? That is the most fundamental question uh, that we can ask when it comes to attraction. All right, so that's the first quality uh, of attraction. Let's look at the second quality. The second quality is vulnerability. Um, And more correctly, when I say vulnerability, I mean the capacity to be vulnerable in a relationship. So let's read on. Let's read on uh, uh, starting at verse 5. Here's what she says. Shulamith says this. She says, "Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the ten curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect." So right away Shulamith she starts talking about her parents. And she says, dark am I, yet lovely. And and so what she's referring to there, of course, is is, is the color of her skin. And what you pick up right away is she's she's somehow insecure about her appearance. And here's why. Uh, In that day in culture, it's very different than our day. In that day in culture, light-colored skin was a sign of beauty. But if you had darkened skin, it was a sign that you probably spent a lot of time outside. Because if you were going to work outside, you would be in the sun all day long, and your skin would be dark. And that was a sign that you were probably from a, maybe a less established or a poorer family, a sign that maybe you were from a laboring type of family. And so in that culture, dark skin was not seen as a sign of beauty, which is a great reversal today, right? Because in our culture today, dark skin is more seen as a sign of beauty, and white-colored skin is like, whoa, you need to step into the light, okay? So it's a very different world that we're living in than the world in which she was living in. So she was saying... Listen, I'm dark-skinned. Like, I know that in this culture, I'm not looking good, but I'm beautiful. And then she's just trying to explain why she's dark-skinned. She wouldn't have been, but she had to go out and work in the fields for her brothers. She had to take care of their vineyard instead of being able to take care of her own vineyard, meaning herself, caring for her own body. She had to do all of this labor outside. So she's kind of like Cinderella when you think about it, right? She's working on behalf of her siblings. So she's saying this. She's saying, listen. Would you please just look past what you see on the outside? Truly see me for who I am. I am beautiful. I am lovely. Now, what this reveals to us is that she was willing to be vulnerable. She's opening up to him about her insecurities. And, and it, listen, it is extremely rare to find a young woman who is not insecure about her looks I think all the women in the room would say, yeah, I can remember, you know, that insecurity was there. Um, so she is, she's just being incredibly vulnerable with him about one of the most significant struggles that she's having, and it's a struggle with her appearance. Now, here's the thing. The reason why she can be vulnerable with him is because she trusts him, because he is trustworthy. See, the truth is, is that you will only be vulnerable with somebody to the degree that you think you can trust that person. So when when trust is high in a relationship, vulnerability is high in a relationship. But when trust is low in a relationship, vulnerability is low. If you think that there's a reason why you don't really know your spouse, chances are there's a breach of trust somewhere in the relationship, and that needs to be fixed and rectified, okay? Because when trust is low, vulnerability is low. When vulnerability is low, nobody's talking about what they really think or feel, So what she wants to know, she's asking a fundamental question that is in every single relationship. So you can apply this in every relationship in your life. You can apply it in your work relationships. You can apply it in your family relationships. uh, You can apply it in your, your friend relationships. She is asking one of the most fundamental questions of relationships. And the question is this. Can I trust you with me? Can I trust you with me? She wants to know that he will still love her. He will still accept her. If she is vulnerable about what she's feeling, what she's thinking, what's going on on the inside. So I think a question that's important to ask, if you are considering relationship, it's just simply this, is this person uh, a person that I feel that I can trust myself with? Here, here are a couple of red flags uh, you, you might consider. Um, first of all, does this person uh, that you're considering shut down vulnerability? So in other words, when you try to open up, when you try to reveal, I'm not just talking about just spilling your guts, but I mean, you just start sharing some things about yourself. Do they just shut it down right away? Do they like, oh, I don't want to talk, let's talk about sports, you know, and they change the subject all right away. That's a good red flag right away that this is, might not be a good thing. Second red flag is this, is that, does that person put down your vulnerability? So when you share, do they mock you? Do they, do they make fun of you? After you share, do you feel better or do you feel worse from sharing in that relationship? Right? So trust, vulnerability, significant, important. Trust generates vulnerability. Is this a person who I can trust to be vulnerable with? It's important in relationship. All right, here's, here's the third quality um, in, in the relationship, uh, th- third quality of attraction to look for, moral purity, moral purity. Let's read a little further on. Song of Songs 1-7. She says, Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock, and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? So so what's she trying to say to him in the text here? Well, to make sense of this, you have to understand culturally in that day what was a veiled woman. In that context in that day, a veiled woman referred to a prostitute. So these were women who would sell themselves to the shepherds on the highways and the byways. Oftentimes they would follow the shepherds along and they would earn a living by selling their bodies to the shepherds. And so what she's saying to him is essentially this. Listen, I, I won't be like that. Don't treat me like that. Other women might do that, but I am not willing to do that. And so, so essentially she is, she is upholding what we would say God's uh, values about sex. And I'm just going to talk about this really quickly here. Is Listen, God is not against sex. In fact, God is the one who created it. Uh, sex is a gift from God. It's designed to be enjoyed within a covenant relationship. And that relationship is a relationship with permanence, with accountability, with commitment. So in other words, God designed this beautiful, sacred connectedness as something that's to be enjoyed in a covenant marriage. That's God's plan. That's what He wants. And, and she's basically saying... I'm sticking to God's plan. Because Shulamith walked with God. She, she aligned her heart with God's moral, moral principles. She lived with conviction. She had boundaries in her life. And because of that, she said, I, I just want to please God. So don't treat me like that. Don't treat me like a veiled woman running around with the, the shepherds, uh, uh, your friends. Now, I, I understand that maybe for some, uh, this might seem outdated. I don't know. It might, might seem archaic or, or a little bit old school. Um, and, and I wish I could take time this morning to unpack this for you. Uh, we've talked about it in the past. You know, I, I'd encourage you to go online. We did a great series called uh, Good Sex, and it was a great series all about this. And we're going to be talking about it a little bit more in the weeks ahead. Um, so don't tune me out uh, just because, you know, I, I'm old school. But l- let me just say this. God doesn't change. Jesus doesn't change. In fact, Jesus is called the Ancient of Days. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And God's gift and design for people, for humanity, hasn't changed. It it, it is still the same. And it's the best design. And it's created for our enjoyment, for our flourishing as human beings. Listen, I I, I understand that that for a follower of Jesus, it is difficult entering into the dating scene in a hookup culture. I mean, when our culture is is primarily about second or third dates and, and then putting out and there's so much pressure on you, Uh, It it can be very, very difficult. But I think Shulamith models something for us. And I think she has something to say to us. And I think if she was here today, she would say, listen, don't compromise. Don't compromise. Keep your values. Um, If you both choose to... Here's, Here's the thing. The dating relationship that you have now is the foundation on which you will build your future marriage. Um, So if both of you choose that you want to give in and you want to compromise, keep this in mind. You will be marrying a compromising person, and you will be a compromising person. And here's a general principle. Compromising people compromise. That's just the nature. So uh, if you compromise with your boundaries now, what reason will you have for not compromising later once you are married? Now, I'm not saying it's guaranteed that just because you compromise now that you are going to compromise later. People change. We know that to be true. But you, it will be in your mind, it will be in your hearts, all through your married life. Is compromise possible? Now, if you are dating someone, and, and, and you're in this relationship, and you're feeling this pressure to live contrary to your convictions, let me just say this. If they're pressuring you, second-guess that relationship. Second-guess that relationship. Because here's the thing. A person who really loves you, a person who really respects you, a person who really cares for you, will allow you to live according to your convictions. They will respect your values. So, I, I just encourage you to second-guess a pressuring type of relationship. Now, I said that compromising people compromise. I also said that there are exceptions to this. And I just want to say that I, I am one of those people. Um, I when Before I started dating Karen, uh, I had... I was sexually promiscuous. I had multiple partners, um, and I was just kind of in the stream of the culture that I was. I found myself, and the reality is, I'm not from a faith background. I'm not from a faith home. Uh, And then, uh, when I was uh, 17, 18, Karen and I started dating. At that time, I had I had begun seeking the Lord. I'd begun seeking Christ. And here's the thing: is in in our three years that we were together before marriage, we did not compromise. It's not that we didn't struggle but we did not compromise. And the other thing I will say is that we've, we've now been married coming this October for 25 years, and we have not compromised. Now, yeah, yeah you can clap on this. I'm excited. 25 years. Woo-hoo. Um, what changed? How did I go from being a, a compromising person to being a person of character? What changed for me was Christ in me, the hope of glory. Listen, when I, when I surrendered my life to Christ... When I gave my life to Christ and I said, Lord, I I just submit myself fully to you, would you just change me? He did. He changed me from the inside out. He wiped my slate clean. He gave me a new beginning. He entered into my life, transformed me, and changed me from being a compromising person to a person of character. And I believe that you know, even if you may have made some mistakes in your past, uh, I can say this from personal experience, that Jesus uh, takes us and loves us where we're at. And he changes us and transforms us into being a person of character. And, and he can transform your life as well. And all it takes is surrendering your life to him and saying, Jesus, would you just change me? Would you transform me? I want to li- a, 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 become the kind of person of character and moral purity. I want to live a life uh, and have a relationship uh, with somebody for the rest of my life that is without compromise. So I, I say that to you this morning just to say I understand uh, this challenge of, of living in this world and dating in this world. So. You need to consider this this morning then. Does this person share the same values that you do? Is this a person that is going to respect and is going to ultimately uphold your values around moral purity? All right, here's the last, here's the last quality uh, this morning. It's is encouragement, encouragement. So finally, Solomon responds to Shulamith's insecurities, and here's what he said. Uh, let's look at verse, uh, verse 9 on the screen. He says, I liken you... My darling, to a mare amongst Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. Now, um, for those of us who are agriculturally challenged, a mare is a female horse. Now, at first blush, it might seem like Solomon's in need of a little bit of relationship counseling. Um, And if you're here today and you're thinking there's nothing wrong with calling a woman a horse, you too might be in need of some relationship counseling. It's actually not a very good pickup line, right? Hey there, yo wee filly, you want to circle the wagons. I mean, that's just not, just kind of hangs out there and doesn't land anywhere, right? Now, before we throw Solomon to the bus, uh, I think it's important to know this, is that his compliment is being lost in translation here. Okay, And let me explain why. He is not just calling her a horse. He is calling her the mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. See, Pharaoh had a, had a chariot. And this chariot was pulled by a whole team of stallions. And these stallions were fighting and bickering among themselves. And they wouldn't go anywhere. They needed direction. They needed something to cause them to move into the same direction. And so what they did was they took this horse, this female white mare horse, and they put her at the front of the team. She was beautiful. She was powerful. She was competent. She was desirable. And she was so desirable that all the other stallions in the team wanted to follow her. In fact, she was the most prized possession of Pharaoh. And, And so what he's saying to her, he's saying, listen, that's how I see you, babe. You are beautiful. You are cherished. You are desirable. The men run after you. I run after you. You are the most important thing to me in all the world. He's encouraging her. He's giving her a compliment. He's affirming her. He's elevating her. You know, and what's interesting as we read through the Song of Songs is you will find encouragement and compliments and affirmation on every single page. In fact, in the first 24 verses of the Song of Songs, 18 of those verses are compliments. This is the kind of relationship that they have with each other. You cannot underestimate the power of positive words in a relationship. A relationship that has uh, affirmation and encouragement at its center is a relationship that's thriving. So here's what I've discovered, and, and I know this to be true. If you want to see that special person in your life thrive, affirm them do it regularly. Do it with words. Don't just do it privately. Actually, do it publicly. Tell the world about him or her, even when they're not around you. Because here's the thing, the degree to which you will esteem that person in your life is the degree to which they will rise and flourish and thrive. So in a relationship, when esteem is high, that person will rise to the degree that you esteem them. In a relationship, when there is no esteem, growth is really hard. And in a relationship, when you berate, criticize, or minimize that person, there is death. So you have this incredible opportunity. You have this incredible responsibility to contribute to the growth and well-being of that special person in your life. So praise often. And when you do it, mean it. Now, I just want to give you quickly an example of this. Uh, when Solomon praises Shulamith uh, for multiple verses, how does she respond? Okay, here's her response. Chapter 2 and verse 3. So we jump over just a few verses. Here's what he says. Uh, she says, Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Now, this is, this is brilliant, and here, here's why it's brilliant. Remember, what was her insecurity? Her insecurity was about her dark skin, right, from from being exposed to the sun. And so Solomon, after she shares her insecurity, he starts to affirm her. He starts to elevate her. He starts to raise the bar on on his opinion of her. He says, listen, you're a a mare, right? He tells her you're beautiful. He says, like, your your eyes, they're like like doves. Again, lost in translation, but good. Okay, eyes are like doves. Uh, She says, yeah, you're a lily among the thorns compared to all the other women. Like, all the other women are thorns, but you are a lily. Okay, so he's just lifting her up. He's raising her up. And here's how she responds to his encouragement. I just want to zero in on one thing that she says. She says, I delight to sit in his shade. I delight to sit in his shade. What was her biggest insecurity in life? Her sun-darkened skin. And what did Solomon provide for her? He gave her shade. She's saying, listen, you protect me. You make me feel safe when I'm with you. You help me feel secure. This is what happens when encouragement, affirmation is the centerpiece in a relationship. You will help that other person feel safe, secure in a relationship. So I think this is something we want to look for, right? If you're thinking about a future partner, someone to be with, is this person an affirming person? Do they, do they build others up or do they tear them down? Are they able to spot the good in other people or do they only spot the negative things that they see? What kind of a person are they? And the bigger question, of course, is what kind of person are you? What kind of a person are you? Are you a person of encouragement? Are you a person that looks for the best in people and and, and seeks to to draw out the best in people? Now, I, I just want to close with this thought. Um, We've, we've obviously, let me just kind of survey the landscape. We've we've explored four qualities of attraction, character, right, vulnerability, moral purity, and encouragement. And it is important to do your homework. If you're considering dating, if you're considering getting into a relationship, and obviously even in in a relationship, but if if you're considering that, it's important that you do your homework. And here's why, here's why. The only thing worse than being single and wishing you were married is being married and wishing you were single. Marriage is a lifelong commitment. It's a lifelong covenant. And it's a beautiful covenant. And because it's a lifelong commitment, you want to marry the right kind of person. The only thing worse than being single and wishing you were married is being married and wishing you were single. And let me just say to the singles in the room, if you're thinking about this, you're exploring this, listen, listen, listen. Do not hurry right away. Right? Don't be urgent about it. Make sure it's the right person or the right kind of person. I'm not saying the perfect person. You will never find the perfect person. Otherwise, marry Jesus, go to a nunnery or go to a, you know, a priest, whatever, okay? Uh, that's not what I'm saying. You're never going to find the perfect person. But what are those qualities? What's your short list? What are the things that you're going to look for? And Shulamith and Solomon give us a bit of an idea uh, of what those qualities might look like. And again, let me just reinforce this. A great marriage does not start with finding the right person. It starts with becoming the right kind of person. Become the person you are looking for is looking for. Now, one of the things you will notice in this text is that those four qualities... Look a lot like Jesus. Each of those qualities. Look a lot like Jesus. Trustworthy, vulnerable, character, moral purity, encouragement. Jesus can change you from the inside out. He can transform your life. You can become the best version of yourself, created in the image of God, to become like Jesus. And that's his promise. And as we surrender our lives to him, he transforms us. How do we grow those four qualities in our lives? Live lives surrendered to Jesus and allow Him to change us from the inside out. That's that's it. Walk in His ways, walk in obedience, and you will become the kind of person the kind of person you're looking for is looking for. Okay. Let's pray together. Let's uh, let's join our hearts together in prayer. We um, thank you, Jesus, that you model for us perfect humanity. And thank you that you take us where we're at and you don't leave us where we were. Thank you that no matter who we are, where we come from, no matter what we've done, you love us and you invite us into relationship. And Lord, our heart's desire is that we would become more and more like you. And so we just surrender ourselves, we posture our hearts before you and say, would you change us to become like you? Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the cross. You gave your life for us. Thank you for the resurrection, which is our entrance into new life, transformed lives. We thank you for that. We bless you and we praise your name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast.